Hello, and welcome back to our Internet Bible Institute class in our series on the Olivet Discourse. I'm Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International and your teacher for this class. In our previous sessions, we've been considering the step-by-step -step trial process that God has been using to bring Israel to this point in Matthew. Step one was the accusation. Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Step two was the witnesses' testimony, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, the 70 disciples that were sent out, and finally, God's Son himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Step three was the indictment the legal act of bringing the accused before the court after enough evidence was presented to suggest wrongdoing. Step four was the twofold judgment. First, the temple would be destroyed, and second, the Jewish people would be dispersed as the kingdom offer and God's presence through his son was withdrawn from that generation. We read in Matthew, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, literally people, bringing forth the fruits thereof, as Matthew 21, verse 43. We also read, Behold, your house is left desolate unto you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, in Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39. Step five was the punishment that was carried out in A.D. 70 when the Roman army destroyed the temple and Jerusalem became, as the scripture had prophesied in Luke, trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's found in Luke 21, verse 24. We are now ready to consider step six. This step, restoration, will end Israel's subjection to the Gentiles. It will restore God's presence in Israel as the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns to the earth as their king. Perhaps you've had a long, cold, snowy winter this year. Or like us in the south here, rainy, cloudy, dreary winter. So let's just pretend that we're all aboard a cruise ship heading out into the azure blue Caribbean Sea. The sky is also very blue with only a few wispy clouds. The sea air is balmy and breezy. We're enjoying a seven-day cruise and we feel relaxed 
and secure. When we left on our cruise a few days ago, we watched the harbor fall behind in the ship's wake as the land slowly drifted from our view. Now, suddenly, without warning, we are startled by the repeated blasts of the ship's alarm. Instantly, the busy, cheerful crew grow somber and silent as a voice comes over the intercom and announces to all the people, all passengers are to put on your life preservers and prepare to get into the lifeboats. Qu questions arise. Is the ship in danger? Should we go to the lifeboats? Will we be rescued? How will we know when to abandon ship? I, I'm so sorry that we can't continue this virtual, lovely cruise, but we can use this imaginary situation to help us consider what it would be like to be in danger at sea. Wondering if we should leave the relative safety of the big ship for what appears to be a very small boat in a very big ocean. At what point do we trust the small boat and leave the ship? Now we can also use this scenario to help us understand the situation the people of Israel will face at the midpoint of the future tribulation. At that time, they'll be forced to make a similar decision. Should they leave the safety of their homes in Israel, an abandoned ship, if you will, to flee to the mountains? How will they know when to leave? How will they know it's time to flee to the mountains? When is it time to abandon ship? Now the Lord answered this question for Israel in Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 and 16. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24 and we'll look at verses 15 and 16. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. Now notice the parentheses who shall readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Flee into the mountains. In the Olivet Discourse, the Lord issued, if you will, a forewarning that he wanted his disciples to record for the benefit of the Jewish people who would be living in Israel during the future tribulation. For three and a half years, after signing the seven-year agreement with the Antichrist, allowing Israel to sacrifice on the Temple Mount, the nation will experience peace and security. As we've learned earlier, the Antichrist will then break his agreement at the midpoint when he goes into the Holy of Holies and proclaims himself to be God. This will be a time when the Israelites must flee from what had been the safety of the ship, if you will, of Israel and escape to the mountains. You see, when Christ spoke of the abomination of desolation, he knew that this would prompt them to remember a similar occurrence in Israel's history that prefigured 
this future tribulation event. The signal prefigured a time in Jewish history that every Jewish person well knew. 400 years after Daniel's prophecy, Antiochus Epiphanes murdered his brother, he seized the Syrian throne. During his rule that lasted from 175 to 164 BC, he strove to unite his Syrian empire by encouraging its many different cultures to conform to the Greek culture and the Greek mindset. Now this was known as Hellenization. Once his empire was united, he now hoped to attack and to conquer the Roman Empire, and he would begin this attack on Rome down in Egypt. Success seemed feasible, being hindered only by the resistance of Israel and the Jewish religion. Now, his method was the same that he employed in many countries. He would destroy their belief in their God and then redirect the people to worship his pagan Greek gods. But after going down to Egypt and uh, trying to attack the Romans, and unsuccessfully in 168 BC, he had to now retreat back to Syria. And through that, he would have to travel through Israel. It was there that he vented his anger upon the Jewish people and their God by systematically persecuting them and desecrating their temple. Now, there are two marks that really indicate this desecration. First, he ordered a sow, an unclean animal, upon the altar in the temple in a direct act to render it unclean and useless. Secondly, he erected a statue of a Greek deity with his own features in the Holy of Holies. Now, this can be found in Daniel 11.31, 12.11, Revelation 13.14 and 15. You see, these two acts successfully stopped the daily sacrifices, for they polluted the sanctuary and profaned any use of the temple site for the worship of the God of Israel. These actions exemplified the definition that we read here in Matthew of an abomination of desolation, for they produced the highest level of ceremonial impurity, temple profanation. Thus, Antiochus Epiphanes prefigured the act of the final Antichrist. Now, the Lord's words here in Matthew would have reminded his disciples of this historical event when they recorded the indisputable signal that would begin the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is a term used in Scripture for the second half of the seven-year tribulation. So, any future Jewish person who sees or hears of such an act of abomination at the temple taking place, they will know for sure that the time to abandon Jerusalem and to flee the mountains has now come. So in summary, the signal will be evident when, number one, the abomination of desolation occurs in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Uh, again, scripture in Daniel 11.31 and 2 Thessalonians 2.4 remind us of this prophecy. The seven-year agreement that reinstituted the sacrifices is at its midpoint, or 1,260 days after the covenant began. The two witnesses by this point will have finished witnessing in Jerusalem. They've been killed, resurrected, 
and taken up into heaven. Now, <laughs> to assert as preterists do that this event occurred when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 is insupportable, for no such acts of abomination took place in the temple at that time. What we now have is the command to abandon ship. These are in the Lord's words in Matthew 24, 16, where he says, Then, notice then, after the abomination, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. That's the abandon ship command. The event will be unmistakable and will convey the same impact as the words from a ship's captain to abandon ship. Now, I want you to notice the sense of urgency in this command to abandon or flee to the mountains. If you turn to Matthew 24, again, in verse 17, and we'll read again 24, beginning in verse 17 through to verse 20. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Again, Matthew 24, verses 17 through 20. Now, carefully note these abandonment instructions. He warns specifically of the difficulty, but notice carefully, not the impossibility of mountainous travel for those even with child or those who have infants. The abomination, excuse me, the admonition to pray that their flight be not in winter nor on a Sabbath day not only indicates that observant Jewish people will know in advance that this flight may be necessary and therefore favorable weather conditions will be very important. You see, they're supposed to be praying that it won't be in those times. God wants them to be praying about this. That also keeps their alertness to the fact that it's going to come, and it also shows their dependency upon the Lord. But further, the majority of those obeying and fleeing will be practicing Jews who would observe Sabbath travel restraints and not go if it were on a Sabbath. Now, those who survive will have to flee the moment the word comes, they can't stop for anything. Notice the Lord is not going to remove them in an instant as he did with the church. Rather, they must make the journey to the wilderness on foot. Now, the Lord has purpose in doing it this way. This journey and subsequent time that Israel spends in the wilderness from the start of the Great Tribulation until three and one half years, now that happens to be 1,260 days later, at the end of the tribulation is better understood as we consider a parallel passage found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Revelation 12 and verse 6. And we read Revelation 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Does that sound familiar like Matthew? Now, although some theologians 
erroneously identify the woman of Revelation 12 as the Virgin Mary who fled with Joseph and the infant to Egypt. The woman of this passage represents the nation of Israel. For I would note, at no time did Mary ever take refuge in the wilderness. Furthermore, Egypt could not be called a wilderness. For in those days, Egypt was a highly civilized nation. No one could possibly imagine Egypt as a wilderness. So Mary doesn't fit. And if you look in our book on the European Union and the supra-religion, I explain carefully how Revelation 12 only pictures Israel. Now notice carefully in this verse, the word feed. This word feed is suggestive of the idea of being nourished. Since they were told to leave Israel back in Matthew and seek safety by flight, they could not be encumbered with provisions. But these are God's people. So notice he will take care of them in a place. That's important, that word place, that he has prepared for them. I would just note that for we who are the bride of Christ, who have received Jesus Christ as our Savior, he is preparing also a place for us. You see, God takes care of his people. So here in Matthew 24, he is preparing a place for Israel to flee to when the command comes to flee. Many theologians believe that Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 4 indicates where this being this place that is being prepared will be located. In in Isaiah then 61 we read, "Who is he that cometh from Eden?" Now Edom is in the south, which dyed garments from Basra. This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Notice, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? So the Lord continues to say, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Speaking of the past. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Notice carefully now. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart. And here is a key. The year of my redeemed is come. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. You see, God is going to deal with all those in the past who have hurt Israel. That's part of the purpose of the tribulation, to give that picture of God's wrath toward those who were opposed to Israel. But the year of his redeemed is come. Notice, there is Basra mentioned, Edom, and the day has come. You see, located in Basra is a region in southwest Jordan today. This is the abandoned ancient fortress city of Petra. Now, Petra may not be the place that is being prepared or been prepared by God, but it sure looks like it. It's a very large city. It is carved in the mountains there, and it could house many thousands of people. In fact, it is one of the prime tourist spots today to go to if you visit Jordan. And people that go in there point out how, how vast 
Petra is and how many locations there are carved in the, the mountains, the sandstone, that you could live in. Now in Matthew 24, verse 21 tells us that the Jewish people will flee at the last possible moment before the greatest time of suffering the earth has ever known. Notice for it says, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Notice in this verse 21, the word then. For then links verse 21 back to verse 16 where they are told, then let them flee. This isn't new revelation, by the way, for the Jews. You see, the Jewish people who knew their scriptures understood this time would come. For Moses had prophesied of a time of tribulation that would take place, and he specifically says, in the latter days. Moses says, when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, notice carefully, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient to his voice. What voice? The voice saying, flee to the mountains. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He'll not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swore unto them. That was Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. Now, Jeremiah also spoke of this very time and day. For Jeremiah tells us, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Never been one like it before. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. That's a reference to tribulation. But he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off his neck, will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. We find that in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. And as we might guess, finally in Daniel. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, notice, such as never was since this was a nation. There was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people, that's Daniel's people, that's the Jewish people. At that time, thy people shall be delivered every one that shall be found written in the book. That's found in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Clearly, these and many other Old Testament references indicate that a time is coming when the nation of Israel is to prepare for her final restoration and her redemption. You see, just as God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and made them a nation, as we read in, read in Exodus, that he will deliver a remnant of Israel during the Great Tribulation and restore them spiritually as a nation. Now, Ezekiel the prophet records great amount of material on this time. Ezekiel shows the connection with the Exodus and this fleeing to the mountains in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verses 33 through 38. So if you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. And I'll begin reading in verse 33. 
As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, with fury poured out. And I will bring you into, notice what it says, I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers, when? In the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. Notice now. And I will cause you to pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they shall sojourn. And they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And notice the real key as he ends this and ye shall know that I am the Lord. What a passage here. He, he links right back to the wilderness of Egypt with this time in the end, which in Ezekiel is speaking about it, and he's saying how he's going to be separating the rebellious from the true. And he will, they will then see how he protects them and cares for them, I believe in Petra, and in doing that, they will see that he is the Lord, their covenant God. Now chapter 13 and 14 of Zechariah tell us of that day and tell us that only one-third of Israel's people will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved during that time. Their rescue at Basra will begin the fulfillment of the covenant God's promise to his nation. That covenant promised them 1,000 years of blessing and rest during the days of the millennium. Now, yes, in the Old Testament, merely talked about this period of time, but the New Testament defines it as 1,000 years, which we call the millennium. For Israel, the great tribulation, notice this, will lead to ultimate blessing. For the world, it is a judgment, but for Israel, it will lead ultimately to a blessing. Recognizing that God will use the tribulation to bring this ultimate blessing, we need to understand carefully, why do they have to abandon ship? Couldn't the Lord have just protected them in the city of Jerusalem? Now we need to see the why they must flee to the mountains. Before we move from the Great Tribulation to Christ's Second Coming, this is a good point to stop and consider the reason why the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation. What motivates him to do such a thing? We can determine the answer by looking at Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, where we're given some very significant information. So if you will, turn to Revelation chapter 12, Verse 14. <laughs> you ever found how hard it is to turn pages, especially when your Bible's getting old here? <laughs> All right, Revelation 12, verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into, there's our key term here, 
into the wilderness, into her place. Remember the Lord says he's preparing them a place, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. You see that in Revelation 12, verse 14? She will be taken into the wilderness. That's literally the same Greek equivalent word used in Exodus. She's going to be there and nourished or fed or cared for for time, times, and a half time. That's three and a half years because that's the, the prophetical term used a time and times and a half time is for three and a half years. And what is she being done? She's being protected from the face of the serpent. Now, John informs us that the woman, Israel, as I've explained earlier, will be given God's supernatural protection. That's what the wings of the great eagles represents because she's fleeing into the wilderness and she'll be swiftly taken there in safety. Furthermore, we see that she is not only fleeing from the Antichrist, but notice carefully, from Satan himself, the face of the serpent. God always wants to remind us that Satan started this all back in the garden through the serpent. So by considering the context of this verse, we can discover the why the Antichrist commits the abomination and why it is at that point that Israel must flee. So let's look at verses 9 through 14 here and understand this. In verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth. Notice. And his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for notice, the devil is come down unto you, stressed, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Notice, when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, which brought forth the man-child. In verse 9, John clearly identified the dragon as representing Satan. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called, notice how God wants you to clearly understand who it is. The devil, if you miss that, Satan, who deceived the whole world. The reference to him as the serpent takes us back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden, where Satan used the serpent to deceive Eve and cause Adam to sin. This is when he first usurped the earthly kingdom and became its ruler. God, however, promised to send a deliverer through the seed of the woman. I hope you remember that from way back in our first class. To redeem humanity and to reclaim the earthly kingdom. Now, understand this. Satan will continue and does continue to rule the earth until Christ returns to reclaim it. 
Therefore, what would Satan fear the most? He would fear the return of Christ because with that event occurring, it will do it will cause him to lose his kingdom and catch this, Satan will do anything to prevent that. God sent the deliverer, remember, to deliver humanity through the nation of Israel that rejected him at his first event, advent or coming. According to Zechariah twelve ten, God promised to cleanse and restore Israel when she returns to him in repentance. He says, Then I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. How shall they mourn? As one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness or sadness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Israel's rejection of their Messiah at his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and during that week only, notice, only delayed the retaking of the earth and the kingdom. When Israel does respond, the Lord will return. Since Christ's return will be in response to the Jewish remnant's cry for deliverance, Satan must destroy every last Jewish person and the nation of Israel before they can cry out. For you see, if there are no Jewish people and no nation to cry out in repentance, Christ won't come back. Now in verse 22, back in Matthew 24, indicates that God must shorten the days of the tribulation for his elect's sake. Notice that in verse 22, except those days should be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved, but for the chosen of God or the elect's sake shall those days be shortened. There are many views concerning this verse, but we must not lose focus on the critical aspect of the verse. If God does not shorten the days, no flesh will be saved. You see, in this context, saved means to be delivered. Not talking about redemption here and eternal salvation. We're talking about deliverance. You see, so we could read, except those days should be shortened, there would be no flesh delivered. Theologian Tommy Ice notes, and I quote, It appears that Satan's effort to destroy the Jews would result in the total annihilation of all humanity were it not for Christ's intervention at the second advent or coming. How crucial, then, it is that Jesus Christ returns. Why will the Antichrist commit his act of abomination at the midpoint of the tribulation? It's very simple. Because Satan now knows, when he is cast out of heaven, that his time is short, according to Revelation 12.12. And the time is, out, time is running out for him to retain hold on his earthly kingdom. In desperation... He will enter into and possess the Antichrist just as he had done with Judas Iscariot, and he will strive to destroy Israel through the Antichrist. In his rage, Satan's efforts will have the potential, notice this, the potential to destroy the world's entire population unless the Lord intervenes. You see, 
Satan would rather destroy the earth's kingdom and all its people than let Jesus Christ reign over it. For those living through these dark days, God offers hope and encouragement. That hope and encouragement is the second coming of his Son, the Son of God, Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, where he tells us, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be in Matthew 24, verse 27. At this point, the Olivet Discourse introduces its last division, the restoration of the nation of Israel and judgment of those living who persecuted her. Now, believers of every era have eagerly anticipated Christ's second coming. I hope that you're looking for his coming for the church at the rapture, the next event on the prophetic calendar. Beyond that, I hope that you are looking forward, as his disciples did, to returning with him at his second coming to rule and reign with him during the millennium. The second coming will be of the Lord will be the greatest moment of triumph the world has ever known. For this reason, God the Father has planned a very special, a very public, and a very unmistakable accompaniment to that return. No one will have to speculate if this is really the Christ. Do you recall that Jesus had warned his disciples not to be taken in by those who claim that Christ was here or there? He had said, Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, he is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great wonders and signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if thou shalt say unto me, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. That's in Matthew 24, verses 23 to 26. Now, according to Matthew 24, 24, we read the great signs and wonders of these pretenders are going to pale in comparison to Christ's glorious coming. Look, if you will, at verses 29 and 30 that describe the awesome scene that will unfold. We read in 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give up her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then, notice, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You see that? The first accompaniment of Christ's second coming will be a sign that all of history, especially Israel, should recognize. It was first seen thousands of years ago as the newly born nation was led out of Egypt. 
Back in Exodus, we read, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. That's Exodus 13, verse 21. The cloud, or fiery pillar, was a familiar sight to those who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, for it had accompanied them day and night. Yes, you've guessed it. It is the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of the Lord. When the Lord was given, when, excuse me, when the law was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, the Shekinah was there. Significantly, as the people of the nation of Israel gathered at the foot of the mount on the third day of their journey, an exceedingly loud trumpet sounded as the cloud covered the mountain and God descended to meet his people. Exodus 19, verses 15 through 18. We read there that the whole mountain quaked greatly and the voice of the trumpet sounded loud and waxed louder and louder as Moses talked with God before the people. That's Exodus 19, verses 18 and 19. Now back here in Matthew, we read immediately after the tribulation, after the clock stopped of the exact seven years, a similar scene will take place this time on the earth. The same sign shall appear, and we read, all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see it and realize that the Shekinah glory has returned as foretold by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. Please turn back to Ezekiel 43. Now this is a significant section of Ezekiel. All of these, the context of several of these chapters is all the millennial period. And in 43, in verse 1 we read, Afterward, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. That would be the eastern gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters. And notice, the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up, brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, filled the house. This is the very same glory that Ezekiel had witnessed in his previous vision that he referenced here in 43, where Ezekiel had seen it as the glory had departed from the temple. You see, it had risen up from the Ark of the Covenant, gone out from the temple through its door, proceeded to the east gate, went to the Mount of Olives, and ascended to heaven some 500 years before it would return again to Israel. 500 years later, it returned to the temple on Palm Sunday, but this time in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. During that week that ended, when Christ was rejected, crucified, and then gloriously resurrected, the Shekinah glory would again leave Israel and return to heaven when Jesus Christ ascended from, where did he descend from? The Mount of Olives.
Now we read, immediately after the tribulation, that's when the seven year comes to an end, it will return to Israel when Christ becomes her king. Over in Zechariah chapter 9, we were informed, and Israel was informed, that her king initially would come in a humble manner, lowly and riding upon an ass. That's what he did at that Palm Sunday. But in chapter 11, Zechariah tells us of the latter days when Jerusalem will become a burnt stone for all people. And as we move to chapter 14, it foretells of a future armies of the world gathering to destroy Jerusalem and her people. Now, instead of destruction, however, deliverance will gloriously come. For we read also that his feet, the Messiah's feet, shall stand in that day upon where? The Mount of Olives. At the end of the tribulation, the Shekinah glory is the sign that will be given in response to the cries of Israel's remnant in Basra for deliverance by the Messiah. Their cry will precede the glorious coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, according to Zechariah chapter 12, in verse 10, we read of the people. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. On that glorious day, it will be clear that the Shekinah glory represents the rejected Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Lord God himself. The great trumpet we read of in Matthew signifies the words of God to his nation of Israel. And the clouds of heaven in verse 30 of Matthew 24 now, the clouds of heaven that join him, are the church saints who return with the Lord to rule and to reign. Why, that's you and me, if you know the Lord as your Savior. You see, the events then described by Zechariah in chapter 14, verse 5, are also given by John in Revelation 19, verse 14, and in Jude, verses 14 and 15. How appropriate that our Lord taught these truths to his disciples while sitting on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, his favorite place in the earth. Now let us look at these final events, if you will, in greater detail. For before these glorious events take place, the stage must be set for this finale of this age history that will immediately precede the millennium. We are now going to look at these events that accompany, if you will, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. First of all, the allies of the Antichrist will assemble for the Armageddon campaign to begin. That campaign is listed or described in the scriptures in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6, Joel 3, 9 through 11, and in Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16. Now, during that time that this coalition is forming, God is also going to miraculously destroy Babylon, the center of the world's finance, power, and false religion in only one hour. 
Yes, I believe it will be a literal the city of Babylon. There's no reason to discount that. Discount that. And as I've said many times and taught in many places, uh, we look at the city of Dubai and how fast it was built in a matter of just a few years. Babylon could be rebuilt very quickly following perhaps the rapture, perhaps even preceding it, it could be rebuilt quickly. But by the tribulation, we know it is the center of power financially and the world's religion and perhaps the ultimate center of the world empire. Who knows at that point? But we do know that it is key and that God is now going to punish Babylon and he will destroy it in one hour, according to Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah's chapters 50 and 51, Zechariah 5, verses 5 through 11, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and specifically verses 10 and 17 of Revelation 18. So Babylon will be destroyed in one hour. But back in Jerusalem, things will look very bleak when Jerusalem's occupation by the Gentiles reaches its historical apex. Now remember, the Jewish people were told by Christ to abandon and flee to the mountains. Those Jewish people who did not, who were disobedient, they'll be in Jerusalem, and it now looks like the Gentiles will totally take over and destroy them. We read this in Micah 4, verses 11 through chapter 5, 1, and Zechariah again, chapters 12 and 14. And the Antichrist now army also will seal off the Jewish remnant in Basra. Now, don't forget, the Lord promised to protect them in Basra if they obeyed him and fled to the mountains of Basra. Therefore, what this is doing is the Antichrist knows they're there. He's going to prepare a siege, because that's the only way he could ever possible deal with people that are in Petra, and he's going to prepare a siege trying to destroy them there. That is recorded in Jeremiah 49, verses 13 and 14, and Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Now, at this point, it would seem that Israel had reached her darkest hour. Yet, the greatest finale of the times of the Gentiles will commence, and heaven is not going to keep secret, as God is going to deliver his people. So, John tells us about this in Revelation chapter 19. So, please turn to Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Revelation 19 verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hands. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down, worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. And now let's look down here to verse 11. 
as the, if you will, the curtain rises on the finale. Verse 11, Revelation 19, And I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And he had on his vesture, on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As the Lord majestically descends with his armies in power and great glory, according to Matthew 24, 30, the earth will slowly revolve on its axis while every eye looks up and beholds him. You see this? Picture this now. Heaven's opened. The Lord's coming down on his great white horse with all the armies with him. That's you and me if you know the Lord is your Savior. And he's coming down. As he's coming down in a very grand, majestic manner, the earth is slowly going about its axis for 24 hours. And so I believe the descent will take 24 hours so that every eye on the earth will be able to see the Lord. But now with his armies, as Lord of the host, he's coming down with an army commands his angels now to go forth, to gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, in Matthew 24, verse 31. Now, according to this verse, and Revelation 20, verse 4, this will begin with the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. Then will come the preservation of believers who survived the tribulation and the removal of the unbelievers from the earth. Now, many have incorrectly interpreted the events picturing this action in Matthew 24, 36 through 42. Let me just read that. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's because the Father is the one that issues the command to send back Jesus Christ, according to the book of Acts. But as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and notice, took them away all away, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. In this passage, Jesus Christ is portraying that the coming of him and his sending forth his angels at the second coming. Remember, though, in the rapture, the imminency of the rapture, there was no way to see something ahead to say, oh, this is about to come. The rapture is an unknown date. It will just occur. It is imminent at all times. Now, if we consider this passage, though, we see that distinct difference. The angels are going out to gather, and the ones taken are the unsaved, the unbelievers. 
One of the most persuasive arguments against the argument that this is the rapture is that there will be signs during the tribulation that clearly indicate his coming. While there are no signs that precede the rapture, for it has been the blessed hope of believers throughout the church age from Acts chapter 2 till he comes. Now the Lord compared his return in this passage to rule the earth to the flood of Noah's day. Notice now, those who were righteous were safely protected in the ark and they lived to continue their lives where? Upon the earth. They weren't removed from the earth. They were put in the ark. They were protected in the ark. After the flood destroyed all the unbelievers, they came out and they dwelled upon the earth. You see, it's the ungodly who ignored Noah's warnings and believed the ordinary pursuits of eating, drinking, and marrying would go on uninterrupted and could care less about God. They were the ones that were suddenly destroyed. Jesus coming as the Son of Man to sit on his kingdom will be just as sudden to them because they won't even be looking for him. In Matthew 24, 40-41, gives us examples of what will take place when the righteous are preserved and the unrighteous are taken. Two will be working in the field, and two women will be grinding at the mill, all performing ordinary daily tasks. Here, happily, the righteous believers will be those who are left behind on earth, and the unrighteous will be taken. You see, for those living during the tribulation, they do want to be the ones left behind. <laughs> Quite the contrary of the rapture, where true believers are taken, the ones who don't believe are left behind. So when the Lord comes with his army, notice now, they're not going to be dressed in camouflage battle fatigues. <laughs> no, not at all. It's going to be in formal, formal clothing. For we read in Revelation 19, verse 14, they are coming in fine linen, white and clean. Those are the a symbol and a picture of what is worn at the great feasts of Israel. It is the most formal wear you can have on. Not fatigues. Because this army isn't fighting. It's his army, but they're coming with him in victory. This isn't going to be a long, drawn-out battle. For the King of kings and Lord of lords will end it with the sword of his mouth, the word of God. For we read, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he then shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That's verse 15 of Revelation 19. Now the beast, or Antichrist, with his armies will be defeated instantly, according to Revelation 19.19, 19, from Basra to the valley of Jehoshaphat. You can read about this in Jeremiah 49, verses 20 to 22, Joel 3, verses 12 through 13, and Zechariah 14, 12 through 15. Now he, the Antichrist, along with his false prophet, are going to be cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 19, 20. Satan, however, is going to be bound and cast into the bottomless pit for 1,000 years in Revelation 21 through 3. Now, this is where the reference is in the Bible to the millennium or the thousand years. 
in the Old Testament and in ancient Jewish writings. They all understood there was coming this future kingdom. They knew it would last a long time, but it was never laid out to them to be exactly a thousand years. We had to wait till we get to the book of Revelation and John's revelation given to him by God to know that it was exactly going to be a thousand years. So now as the Lord has been progressing down, these events have occurred. He comes to the Mount of Olives and from the Mount of Olives, he enters into Jerusalem, his beloved city. The eastern gates will open to him. Oh, I know they're sealed today. That's not going to stop the Lord God Almighty. He'll walk right through them. He will enter and take his place upon the throne on the Temple Mount on the throne of David. Recorded for us, as I read in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 5. Now, one last event must take place before the millennium begins. The saved and unsaved Gentiles of all nations must come before the king. This is not the great white throne judgment. No, it's simply the assigning of the destination of each of the two groups. The saved that are the sheep on Christ's right hand will be blessed and welcomed to the millennial kingdom that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. They will be praised for their demonstrating their faith by being merciful to his brethren, the children of Israel, during the tribulation. The unsaved, pictured as the goats in this passage, are placed on his left hand and will be told to depart into everlasting punishment. Notice verse 46, everlasting punishment, and admonished for showing what? No mercy to the Jewish people in the tribulation. You see, they were totally compliant with the actions of the Antichrist. Notice Jesus Christ clearly, as I stressed, is the king now. No longer will his identity be an issue of debate. All who rejected him will bow their knees and confess that he is Lord, that at the name of Jesus shall every knee shall bow, should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10, 11. When this action is completed, all will be fulfilled. The nation of Israel will be spiritually as well as physically regenerated or reborn. Now, there's quite a number of passages that cover this, so I urge you to see that on the screen. And we'll see that the king is now king of kings and lord of lords and will be seated literally on the throne of David on the earth in the city of Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies to rule the earth in peace and righteousness for 1,000 years. Revelation 19, verse 16. What about his bride, church-age believers from Acts 2 to the rapture? What are we going to be doing? Well, we can gather several things. His disciples will take their place on 12 thrones to rule the 12 tribes of Israel. And the church-age believers will rule the nations of the earth with their bridegroom, the Lord, the King, during the millennium and on into eternity.
I hope this series has been a help to you and useful in giving you a better understanding of God's plan for the latter days of Israel. In the weeks to come, we'll begin a new series of Bible teaching, as well as some news briefings, analyzing current events from a Christian perspective. Please check our website for announcements as to when each of these new video teaching webcasts will be available. Remember, all classes are free and available 24-7 through our website. And I hope you'll join us again for our many new webcasts coming. Until we gather again to study our Lord's Word, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I will see you here or in the air. Yeshua returns to Israel.